From absurd and macabre works like Buzzsaw, Berkeley, and Quills, to the elegant and understated I Am My Own Wife and Grey Gardens, through to the family-friendly The Little Mermaid, our guest today has seemingly made a specialty out of telling stories about society's outsiders and misfits, and how they do, or don't, become accepted into the larger world. He has also most recently been highly praised for his personal and moving contribution to the American Theatre Wing's book, The Play That Changed My Life. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to welcome Doug Wright. Thanks so much. Your most recent credit was an adaptation of Strindberg's Creditors this summer out at the La Jolla Playhouse. And I'm always curious, why would a playwright who has created original works um, or adapted works, in your case, and sometimes from real life, why would you want to go to work on something written originally by someone else? A great question, and with a candid answer, uh, Christopher Ashley dangled a very seductive carrot and said, if you adapt it, you can direct it. So I tried to use my authorial credit as a means of uh, working my way toward the opportunity to actually direct the piece. And uh, it was 90 minutes long. It was a three-character piece. It was by an august author. And I thought for a first time out as director at the La Jolla Playhouse, it felt like a good choice. So does that mean you have a desire to move into directing – for the future? Uh, somewhat. I, I had the great pleasure of directing three one-acts uh, at the Vineyard Theater under the collective title Unwrap Your Candy and uh, had a wonderful time doing it. Uh, I know uh, there's a uh, an adage that says playwrights should not direct their own work, and I'm very fond of saying if uh, a Martha Stewart can write the recipe, there's every chance in the world she can bake the cake. And hmm. uh, so uh, I, I did direct my own work in that instance. This time I did want uh, to have a little uh, distance from the text itself. And I've always been a Strindberg fan, and I feel like we're simpatico. We both have a slightly dark edge and a caustic humor. And so he felt like a good match, and it let me flex those muscles. Yet so many playwrights talk about how much they enjoy the collaboration with the director. Does it get a little lonely when you're talking to yourself? (laughs) Well, I was talking to the figurative and ghostly Strindberg, so there was Mm -hmm. a relationship there. And in Shirley Fishman, uh, she's a a longtime collaborator. She dramaturged I Am My Own Wife and is the dramaturg at the La Jolla Playhouse and was in rehearsals with me as well. So I surrounded myself with designers I trusted at a theater that I knew and had worked at before. And so I, I built in safeties to avoid that problem. In the process of doing the show, let's talk first about the script, which is there was a literal translation um, that was done. So did you take liberties or was it simply about taking what Strindberg had said and putting it into – American speech. A wonderful guy named Anders Cato did the literal translation, and he was very helpful dramaturgically, too, because his knowledge of Strindberg was very comprehensive. Uh, But I really wanted it to be Strindberg's play. I didn't want it to be uh, necessarily a take on his play. I didn't change the time period. I didn't change the nationality of the figures. It was set in Sweden. I I, uh, tried to really... 
uh, serve Strindberg's vision and not my own. Uh, there are some aspects of the narrative that seemed a little creaky by today's standards, so I cleaned those up a bit. Some turns of phrase that were obscure. But for the most part, I wanted to be able to say it was August Strindberg's play and not my own. So I would say that it was a uh, 85 to 90 percent fidelitous adaptation. And then in rehearsal, as the director, did you find yourself, since you obviously had the freedom to do so, in working with the actors, did they discover either things that were difficult in your adaptation that they needed help, or did you see things as a director that you hadn't seen as an author that needed to be reworked. Both things happened very much so. The actors would come across a phrase that fell funny on the tongue or the meaning was perhaps a bit obscure or circular and they would ask for greater clarity from the director Doug and the writer Doug would sort of whisper, maybe you could tinker with that and solve the problem. So I would. Uh, but we weren't finding new material. We were really trying to excavate the original text. So there were even times when I would say, this is the exchange in the original Strindberg. I find it problematic and odd. What do you think it means? And together, can we answer the riddle? Hmm. So, so we really did try and, and listen to Strindberg as, as, as carefully as we could. And so how successful do you feel you were as a director? I had an absolutely fantastic time. That's not always the best measure of the end result, but I'm, I'm deeply proud to say that uh, it was a bit of a hit for the Playhouse. And uh, uh, in as much and the as word it, hit and Strindberg do not always <laughs> go well, together. And in this economic climate, a play titled Creditors was something of a liability too. But uh, uh, the the critical community in in San Diego and, and uh, Southern California was extremely positive, and it was uh, uh, all of those external indicators that connote some kind of success were present. More than that, in the pit of my stomach when I was watching it, I felt mortified and moved and uh, disconcerted and wickedly amused and all the things I think one wants to feel when one watches Strindberg. So I felt like I was in the presence of uh, a master playwright who certainly wasn't uh, my own puny self. So hmm. I think in some small uh, way we, we, we got at what uh, August was, was hoping for. So you've directed the work of Doug Wright and you've directed the work of August Strindberg. <laughs> Is there work out there that you think you would want to explore solely as a director or is directing only an extension of the writing for you? I'm still exploring that idea. I think, you know, writing is so very solitary and uh, directing is so collaborative and, and so socially oriented that they are a nice balance. They do feed one another, I think, in a really productive way. And there's no better way to learn your own craft than to sort of walk in the footsteps of one of the masters, like a Chekhov or a Strindberg or an Ibsen. And so uh, it was both exciting for me as a, a, a creature of the theater, but also incredibly instructive as a writer to direct. I think... As a kid growing up in, in, in Texas, I always wanted to work in the theater. So I acted in plays and I directed shows at, you know, the, the neighborhood town hall and I uh, uh, built sets for high school plays. And it was only in graduate school where uh, the opportunity to work in the theater meant checking a box. And uh, the box I happened to check was playwright. 
But that was partly just efficacy because I thought to be an actor, you have to have a role. To be a director, you need a play and a producer. But to be a writer, you just need a paper, a pen, and an idea, and you can control your own destiny. You don't have to wait for someone else to give you permission to participate in the theater. And so that's why I checked that box, not because I felt I had any greater proficiency in that area. So then suddenly you, you're in your 40s and you go, oh my God, I'm a playwright to the exclusion of all these other disciplines. And uh, at least it makes me hungry to do more. Well, since you bring up growing up in Texas, let's talk about that. What uh, inspired you to the interest in theater growing up? Was it Dallas? Yes. Um, were you seeing stuff? Were your folks taking you to stuff? Or was it just uh, genetic? My parents, my, both of my parents had minored in drama at their respective colleges. So they both had an affinity for it. And they took me to uh, children's theater when I was young. And uh, the first grown-up play I saw was Life with Father by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. And so theater was a kind of constant in our household without uh, disparaging my hometown. I don't think Dallas in the late 60s and early 70s was any kind of great cultural capital. So uh, uh, I don't know how ultimately good it was, but in the moment it was certainly thrilling. And, And I also think that as a sort of shy, relatively well-behaved, incipient gay kid in Texas. You learn to conceal a lot, to hide a lot of what you're feeling. And the theater seemed uh, to welcome emotive outbursts and lavish flights of feeling. And I think let me express myself more richly than maybe the mores of the town allowed. And so it became a kind of life-saving therapy too, which I think is true of a lot of people out there in our beautiful, great, unwashed, and sometimes very frightening country. Hmm. So you were in all your high school shows, presumably? Yes. So, so what acting? Since I was going to ask you when you were talking about it's, it's good to not only check off one box. So you've checked <laughs> off writing. You've checked off director. I was going to ask you about acting. Um, what roles might we have seen if we were frequenting your high school? And- oh, I played the canon. I uh, – I, was very amused recently when my dear friend Jefferson Mays, who did I Am My Own Wife, uh, had the great privilege of doing Pygmalion with the roundabout opposite Claire Danes. And I uh, told him before he accepted the job that he would be competing with one of the most memorable performances as Henry Higgins in uh, Highland Park High School history. And that would have been my own senior year in 1981. But he was undaunted. In Pygmalion or Fair yes, Lady? In Pygmalion. Uh-huh. In Pygmalion. But he took the role anyway. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll hazard he even excelled in it. But uh, yeah, so I did that and I did, oh, Elizabeth the Queen uh, we did and we did uh, uh, all kinds of Chekhov one acts and just a preposterous ar- array of things. Now, because I've read your essay in The Play That Changed My Life, I, I have some indications of, of your transition out of Texas and, uh-huh. and into New York. But did you you – did you know that you wanted to go and train for theater? I mean, that was was that absolutely as you got out of high school saying, I'm getting out of here, I'm going to New York, I want to do theater. That was pretty definitive. And was it already – had you already decided which box you were checking? Had you decided that it was going to be playwriting or was it – theater just in the broadest sense. I think in the broadest sense, I just wanted to sort of enter the temple and stay there as long as I could in whatever capacity. So you went to the Tisch School and 
was was there a particular specialization there that you ultimately had to do, or was it a, a survey theater? Well, I did major? my undergraduate work at uh, at Yale, oh, I'm, so it was I'm a very sorry, I've got them backwards. No, that's quite all right. Uh, but so that was a big liberal arts education, and I uh, I was so impractical as a youth that I thought if I'm going to major in theater, I should really double major, and I should back that up with something pragmatic and hardcore that I can truly earn a living at. So some bread and butter. Uh, discipline. So I chose art history. Huh. That's how flaky I was. I actually thought art history was a more tenable yes, career Yes, that path. was something to fall back on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But so I, I, I double majored in theater and art history and then uh, uh, went on to the Tisch School of the Arts to get an MFA. So undergraduate at Yale, there are certainly plenty of undergraduate dramatic societies mm-hmm. around Yale. And people, most people think of Yale, they think of Yale Rep, but that's the graduate school. Uh-huh. Re- you know, only when they need crowd scenes to undergraduates <laughs> get called in. Were you doing undergraduate stuff? Were you doing... I was, absolutely. Extracurricular I was acting, dramatics. I was directing, I was building sets, I was doing anything I could. Got it. So then... But you did you go immediately to Tisch? Was it? I did. Mm-hmm. I uh, started to panic my senior year and realized I uh, didn't know what I would do. And uh, I'd always been relatively good in academic settings, so I thought, why not stay in one and go to graduate school? So it was kind of a last-minute uh, decision. But I uh, think uh, the Tisch School of the Arts, uh, thankfully, had the uh, most generous uh, application deadline. And so I <laughs> scrawled <laughs> one, and I checked that playwright From box. such decisions, a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> one. Um, at what point did you embark on writing plays? At an embarrassingly early age. So you'd been doing it? It had been a hobby of sorts. Uh-huh. I wrote uh, an epic play called The Devil's Playground when I was 10 years old. And in the most supportive maternal gesture, I think in recorded history, my mother typed the manuscript so it would look professional. And it was a sort of Baroque uh, English drama set on the moors where uh, characters uh, were all out to poison one another. I don't think anyone survived the play intact. But it was full of uh, delicious stage directions like uh, they stage an elaborate wedding cookies are served. <laughs> so it was, it was a young mind feverishly at work. So that was my first play. And when I, uh, uh, I was a, a member of that illustrious organization, New Dramatist, for a number of years. And as part of your graduation, when you, you leave that community, they ask that you host a reading of one of your favorite works. So I got some top caliber actors to sit in a circle and read the play that I penned when I was 10 years old. And it was kind of hilarious. <laughs> I'll ask you a, a, a question I usually ask in all seriousness. Had you been moved to go back and rework the piece since its <laughs> original production? You know, I did, in fact. I thought that uh, people would be amused for maybe 90 minutes. They probably wouldn't hang on for the full three hours. So I made judicious You'd, cuts. But it really was that when you – I mean, sometimes when people say an epic play when they're 10 years old, you think, okay, it's 30 minutes, not 10. Endless. It My was gosh. endless. Endless. So we trimmed it a bit for the reading. Well, then let's say – when did you write your first adult play? Well, the first I, – I wrote a play in college, a little play called The Stonewater Rapture, which was a one act and dealt with my childhood in Texas. And I'm, I'm pleased and proud to say that uh, it still remains one of my most produced works in the secondary schools and uh, colleges and in acting classes. So I wrote that at about 20 years old and uh, – it's uh, Dramatist Play Service still gets uh, 30 or 40 productions a year at various venues. Hmm. 
And it's you said it's about growing up in Texas. So is it just slice of life or is there a specific, uh, a specific theme to it? I'd say it's really about the impact of sort of uh, pernicious fundamentalist Christian ideology on adolescence and emerging sexuality. It was pretty much what I was living through at the time. Hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's it has all the sort of flaws and all the brio of a very, very young play. But I'm, I'm flattered that uh, acting teachers and, and college directors uh, find it uh, a worthwhile journey for their in, incipient actors. Uh, so it's been fun to see it produced so regularly over the years. And was there an initial professional production of it? Uh, it was done on campus in a production I directed. And then it was done... This uh, is at Yale or at, at Yale. Okay. And, and then uh, I was, I think, a, a sophomore or a junior at Yale. And then uh, it was taken uh, a, a small semi my professional company in California did it at the Edinburgh Festival hmm. where it got a, a nice reception and then it was uh, published in one of the best short play volumes and uh, uh, sort of launched from there. So it never had a, a Lorter equity production. Uh, it's, it's you know, a young play. It's probably an hour running time. Uh, but it's been nice to see it have a life regardless. Well, the, uh, having it anthologized certainly gives it a life. Absolutely. Because if it was even just sitting on shelves at, at uh, the drama bookshop, people would really have to search for it and say, what is this? <laughs> um, so then the next play um, – that went to really to a, ultimately a, a professional production was your play Interrogating the Nude. Absolutely. Which first was accepted into the uh, Playwrights Conference at the O'Neill. So now were you still at, were you out of Tisch at this point or were you still going to school? That was actually my graduate thesis play at Tisch. Hmm. Uh, so I wrote it there uh, to get my degree and then, uh, uh, you know, graduation was coming up and I had no plans for the summer. So I submitted it to the O'Neill and they were kind enough to say yes. And it was my first real professional experience in the theater. And what was that experience? Lloyd Richards was certainly uh-huh. at the height of running the conference at that time. There were... Dramaturgs. There were professional actors. There were directors who directed it. Uh, a wonderful woman named Gita Honiger, who was at that time also the dramaturg mm-hmm. of Yale Rep. Um, and what was the experience of having your play fully, you know, examined in? What at the O'Neill was also a very compressed time period because each play basically went from first reading to final presentation in a six-day period. It was dramatic and indispensable. Uh, the play dealt with uh, the artist Marcel Duchamp, and his work is extremely provocative. And so the play endeavored to be provocative in the same way. And a number of my fellow O'Neill attendees found certain elements of the play uh, outrageously offensive and were quite vocal about that. And uh, some even asked that the play be removed from the lineup wow. because of its content. And I was newly out of grad school. I was 24 years old and not terribly worldly, and I was horrified. That, that people were having such an incendiary response. So it was the first time I was confronted with uh, how to responsibly handle provocative material so that an audience is driven to, write, uh, to ask the right kinds of questions about the world that we live in uh, and not merely uh, uh, mortification at my... Uh, uh, indelicacy in bringing those issues up. So it it made me take full responsibility as a writer for 
my own predilection for uncomfortable subject matter. But interpret for me what you mean by taking responsibility. Does that mean that you altered the work or does that mean you simply had a greater understanding of the effect of your work? I altered the work significantly. It was fascinating because Duchamp often comes in for allegations of misogyny. And he had a female doppelganger, an imaginary character he created, uh, whom he named Rose Selavi, based on the phrase Eros Selavi. And uh, so in the play, uh, there were a lot of scenes between Duchamp and his alter ego, Rose. And sometimes the scenes were uh, pretty provocative, sometimes violent. And uh, some people bristled at that. And uh, uh, Gita whispered in my ear, uh, there's a way to correct this. And I said, what? And she said, well, it's a casting solution. She said, uh, Rose is a kind of creation of Duchamp's. Right now we're casting an actress. Let's cast an actor. And and let's have Duchamp as Duchamp, and then let's have Duchamp as Rose in a kind of transvestite pose so that we understand it's his vision of woman, not a literal woman. And what seems offensive in the current draft will suddenly become playful and gleefully perverse. And uh, it was a brilliant solution on her part. We did it. I then, in the text, wrote toward that solution and was able to play all kinds of fun, mistaken identity games so that in the final production, two actors shared the roles of Duchamp and Rose and alternated in every scene. So it became a really fascinating solution for what had been uh, a very vexing problem. Hmm. Uh, and so it not only made me, I think, grow up as a writer, but grow up something as a you know thinking person out there in the world, uh, how dangerous it is to insensitively lob provocative material out there, and yet when done responsibly, how rewarding it can be. Hmm. So a lot of necessary lessons, I think, for a young writer. At that time, it was pretty common for works that Lloyd Richards liked at uh, the O'Neill to find their way onto the stage of the Yale Rep, either as the full production or when Lloyd was still running uh, the Winterfest series. Mm-hmm. And so interrogating the nude ended up in Winterfest, if I remember That's correctly. That's exactly correct, yeah. How much – I mean, that's a unique opportunity because Gita directed it. There, So you were actually able to go from your workshop, which would have taken place sometime in July, to a full product, a reasonably full production. If I remember, Winterfest was always a January exactly. event. So how much did the play change? How much was it just a logical extension of the work you'd already been doing? Both things are true. It changed a great deal as a logical extension of the work we'd been doing. Uh, I, I had, my mind was exploding with ideas when I left the O'Neill, and, and the time between that and uh, the commencement of rehearsal allowed me to further explore mostly this idea of this dual casting and to work it through and be in control of it in the text itself so that it was always surprising and well-considered. So uh, it was pretty heady and pretty thrilling. And having done my undergraduate work at Yale and attended the rep quite religiously and had some transformative experiences there. To suddenly find myself produced there was very heady indeed. And so many uh, young writers uh, at uh, Winterfest were out of the Yale program, as as only makes sense. Uh, And I felt a sort of churlish delight at... uh, uh, coming from NYU to uh, the rep instead. <laughs> and then your next play also at the rep, Dinosaurs? Yes, exactly. 
which didn't have the benefit of the O'Neill and in retrospect perhaps should have. Hmm. I, I had a wonderful experience and in fact there are cast members in that production who have remained some of my very, very dearest friends in the world. I think that was a play that I learned on. I don't think it's one that's uh, uh, ever going to be pulled out of the bottom drawer and dusted off and remounted. I think it was a, a young effort, but uh, a valuable step in my journey toward tackling bigger subjects. Hmm. Now, it looks like all in a fairly close period of time, you then had, in, in right around 89, all of this is happening. It looks uh-huh. like 88, 89, um, an adaptation of Ubu or Ubu Wa, depending <laughs> on, um, at the new house. And, of course, I've already asked you about the idea of adapting someone else's work. But when you talk about um, the responsibility for dealing with, you know, an effect on an audience and, and perhaps even the shock value, taking on Ubu is, you know, it's generally considered, you know, one of the, certainly in its day, it was the most shocking thing imaginable and it still has the power to do that. So, so what was it like to tackle that piece? I was too young to, ta- huh. to tackle that piece, in truth. It, it was a very... Uh, uh, challenging experience. I think uh, there was a, a wonderful young associate artistic director at Lincoln Center at the time named Larry Sloan, who had a great affection for the play and needed someone who could help him adapt it. And I came in somewhat naively with a very high-powered and, and, and fantastic cast and uh, a delicious design team. And uh, I think I worked too hard to please my collaborators and not hard enough to serve the text. And I think I lost sight of the project. I think I lost sight of what it should be. And uh, Larry was a very, very uh, gifted talent who was unfortunately uh, diagnosed with HIV during rehearsals. And, mm. and uh, so he had a great deal of, of trouble commandeering the production. And uh, it was the only time in my life as a writer, I have stood at the back of the theater uh, holding the door open for patrons as they fled during Ooh. the first 10 minutes of the show. And I, I wish I could say that was because we had made it as unsettling and, and revolutionary as the original Ubu, but I'm afraid it's because the production itself was something of a train wreck. Hmm. And and it, many of us who were a part of it bonded over it uh, ferociously because it was so very difficult, I think, for all of us personally who worked on it. And it was attended by so much very real trauma. So uh, it almost sent me to law school, but uh, I uh, decided to stay in the theater and slug it out. Well, as I say, right around the same time, Buzz saw Berkeley. <laughs> so so I, don't, I don't, may not have the chrono- chronology exactly right. I think but, you do. But – you know, now you're doing an outlandish musical collaborating with Michael John Lacusa on Mickey and Judy meet the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Largely. As, <laughs> as, as the New York Times described it, at least. Um, you'd not done a musical before then. Um, what? Uh, how did that come together? I have to say it, it makes me nostalgic to talk about because uh, I have such affection for uh, Kyle Rennick and the WPA Theater. The WPA Theater is no longer with us, but it was really uh, a wonderful uh, and, and necessary place that launched plays like uh, Steel Magnolias and Little Shop of Horrors and uh, Jeffrey and uh, some really uh, wonderful, wonderful work. But uh, Kyle Rennick wanted to do something called a late-night silly series uh, where he could open the theater after 10 p.m., serve 
drinks and people could see a kind of irreverent sketch. So we asked us to create Buzzsaw Berkeley in that context. Uh, we did. We wrote this sort of hilarious late night review or so we thought and uh, Kyle was sufficiently enthused to give us the main stage which was very generous of him and he let us misbehave on it for several happy weeks. Uh, I think at the time I'd been seeing a lot of Charles Ludlam, a lot of Charles Bush was very uh, impressed by them and it was kind of a valentine to their work I think more than it was in my own voice and I think it was not quite as smart or savvy or sophisticated as their work. It was uh, a young writer in their thrall engaging in emulation. So I'm not sure it's, uh, again, a work that ever needs to be excavated, but it certainly had a formative role in my life. Well, it's interesting. As as we're talking, we've now mentioned three shows in a row that you say – didn't succeed. <laughs> Great bonding experiences with the company, but don't necessarily need to be seen again. That three shows like that in a row could send somebody to law school or <laughs> or some other chosen profession. I mean, what what was your state of mind after these series of shows, which which didn't necessarily succeed, even though as a young writer you were getting productions, which that alone is extraordinary. Well, I think I I have a number of of thoughts in response. First of all, uh, the only way a a young writer grows and learns is by the luxurious experience of failure. And to have brilliantly talented people come together to realize your work uh, at an early stage and apply all of their magnificent talent to it and and give it every advantage. And then uh, if it doesn't work, if you can see why and how how it doesn't work, you can actually apply that the next time. And I think uh, people are so frightened of new play production right now and, and workshops have become almost fetishistic. And I think what writers need are full productions and the experience of uh, living through criticism and living through audience response and all those things uh, in order to grow. So it, it had all the attendant pain of adolescence, but adolescence is necessary if we're ever going to reach adulthood. And I think those early plays uh, were very much that way for me. And and I, so I'm particular. I'm I'm obviously I'm grateful to the artistic directors who produced my successes, but I owe a piece of my heart to every artistic director who produced one of my failures because they're the men and women that gave me a career in the theater. So so I also think uh, it was the only thing I knew how to do and to abandon it felt like seeding defeat uh, in a way that I wasn't about to do. Uh, so uh, I think my own uh, 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 pervasive arrogance uh, kept me uh, toiling away. And certainly I talk about those plays now with – in retrospect, with uh, a degree of uh, censure toward them that I didn't feel at the time. At the time, I thought, you know, I'd written the greatest new play since Death of a Salesman. But it's only in, with 20 years of distance that I can look back and say, oh, you sweet young thing. Uh, so at the time, you know, I was incensed by their failure and the world had it wrong and, and the play was a jewel. And you need a certain measure of that uh, 
blindness as a youngster just to keep going. Because hmm. so, we should say, I'm guessing you're 26, 27 when yeah, these are happening. Absolutely, absolutely. So I was a kid, and you know, I was surrounded by people like Michael John Lacusa and Christopher Ashley who were no more inclined to quit than I was. And so when you're surrounded by uh, a such formidable talent, I think you, you buck will yourselves up and you say, we must keep doing this. And truthfully, while Buzzsaw Berkeley may not ever enter the canon as one of the great lost American musicals, I, I think it, it it says something kind of lovely about it that all three of its creators have, have uh, gone on to uh, uh, enjoy the fruits of some successes. And, and so that suggests to me that somehow we intuited we may not have gotten it right that time, but we were all chasing the right goal. Hmm. As you say, you were angry at the time, but you just gave such great credit to those artistic directors. Were those artistic directors giving you guidance? Were they acting as mentors? Absolutely. When, when the, even when the shows weren't clearly going to have mass acceptance. Yeah, no, I think so, absolutely. And of course, they also sanctioned the work. I mean, right. we all hoped the plays would be embraced, whatever their flaws. And uh, uh, I should say, too, that uh, while I'm uh, uh, sort of sanguine about them in retrospect, in some quarters, they were quite loved. And I also think one thing you find living and working in the New York theater is that uh, the critical community kind of exists in its own sphere. And the people that make theater are close and talk a lot and uh, compare notes on various emerging artists. And if uh, you get a bad New York Times review as a young writer, but there are four artistic directors in town who have said – hey, do you know about that that young woman who's newly out of Yale or Columbia? She wrote that really interesting play that, that wasn't that well-received, but there was a true, authentic, authorial voice there. Let's see what she does next. Let's keep tabs on her. And if, if, if the artistic community were looking to the critical community for who to hire and who, who to produce, there would be no new playwrights. But they don't. They really admirably listen to their own instincts, hmm. I think. And that's how careers are, are nurtured and born because it's not, it's not really the role of the critical community to nurture new talent. Their job is to alert their readership uh, uh, to what to see and what to spend money on and how to spend Mother's Day weekend. And I think uh, – Artists who actually are under pressure to produce theater uh, bring a whole different eye toward it, and most of them are in it uh, not uh, for tomorrow's uh, paper, but uh, in the hopes that in five or six or seven years, an interesting writer emerges from their support and their efforts. It was a half a dozen years later that you were back at the WPA with Wadbanaland. Am I pronouncing Uh it correctly? Yes, well done. Um, Which was not well-received by the New York critics, but then was subsequently done down in Washington at the Woolly Mammoth, where it seems like it was embraced. Was it the same production that moved, or were it two totally separate productions? It wasn't the same production, and, and I'm so glad you bring that up, because that was another great experience for a young writer. We didn't get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the stakes were higher, because it was New York, and it was sort of you know judged for all time here. But in Washington, uh, it was a different production, markedly different 
different in tone and design and much truer, I think, to the text. And so uh, there it was a, a, a galvanizing, shocking, riveting event. And in New York, I felt it was uh, – uh, just not fully as fully realized, and I, I only I had a gorgeous cast and brilliant designers and a gifted director, and I only blame myself because uh, I don't think I advocated for the play enough in the rehearsal room. Hmm. I don't think I was sure of its tone. I think it was a kind of ferocious, mean spirited little play, and uh, the writer in me was delighted to be writing something so uh, ugly. And the person in me was apologizing for it at every turn and leavening it with every decision that we made. And so I think I spent most of my time in rehearsal in New York dulling its edges. And without me in Washington, a courageous director, let it be as unruly and as ugly and as challenging as it was, and audiences responded quite appreciatively. In the preface to a collection of your plays, which includes Quills, What Bonna Land, and Interrogating the Nude, you said that when you look back on the plays, you the, the common theme was you were you were writing from rage. Uh-huh. Do you still feel that's true? I mean, I don't know when you wrote that that preface, but but is that the case? And if so, what were you raging about or against? I think I was. I think I was an angry young man in my soul, but very congenial in affect. Uh, So I think I was a deceptively furious person. And uh, I think a lot of it... From the nice young man in Texas who behaved and... Who behaved. I think underneath that, uh, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of sort of roiling rage. And I think it had to do with everything you'd expect, growing up gay in a conservative state, uh, trying to forge a path as an artist in a largely mercenary culture. all of the insults and pains of childhood that I've never accounted for. None of the reasons for my rage are particularly original, but they were all sort of the potent evergreen reasons for any young man's rage, I guess. And uh, I do think, you know, adulthood has a funny way of altering your perspective and changing you. And I think now uh, I'm a much softer soul. And certainly uh, Quills was born of all kinds of florid anger. But I think uh, I Am My Own Wife was a play I I really wrote out of love. And uh, I think now I I write from a lot of different places. I'm Hmm. no longer as reliant on on all that anger. Well, where else did Quills come from? I've read that you say it was it was fueled in part even by the political climate surrounding the NEA, which is not one something one would immediately get from <laughs> from the story of the Marquis de Sade. Yeah, it's interesting because at the time, as I'm sure you recall, uh, there was a great uh, culture war going on between uh, Jesse Helms, the conservative senator from uh, the Carolinas, and the photographer Robert Mapplethorpe. Uh, whose work was being exhibited in a small gallery uh, with NEA funds, and that raised the ire of the good senator. And in everything that you would read, the two men, uh, the living senator and the late photographer, were cast as adversaries in a brutal debate about uh, the nature of uh, free expression and, and public funding. And I always thought that's such a the wrong way to characterize them. This is the most symbiotic and beautiful dance the late 20th century has seen. The more a Jesse Helms rails against the photographs, the more famous they become and uh, – uh, the more he also ensures his own re-election. So everyone seemed to benefit. Helms got re-elected, and this previously obscure photographer suddenly had 
coffee table books for sale at Barnes and Noble.、Hmm. And I thought, this is a beautiful relationship. And for the two of them, it's working. So I thought, What's the, what's the larger truth in this? And, and what I arrived at, I think, is that the censor has always been the artist's most reliable muse. And if you tell an interesting artist, don't do that, you've actually given them boundless inspiration to do that very thing and worse or more.、Uh, and, and so I wanted to write a play where.、Uh, Uh, the good Dr. Ray Collard of the Charenton Asylum is working to censor the Marquis, and his every effort to censor the Marquis only makes the Marquis more lavishly productive. And there's this poor, sweet, secular soul trapped in the middle who represents most of us, the Abbe du Colmier, who gets sort of chewed up between the two men. So、uh, it, it, it's, its precursor really was Mapplethorpe and Helms.、Hmm. But also interesting that. In your first full length play, Duchamp,、uh-huh. uh, someone who shocked and, and, as you say, was considered misogynist,、uh-huh. Desaad, who obviously is considered perverse、uh-huh. and a dangerous man, most people think of their reputation. It's interesting that you were drawn to these real people who had these reputations and then chose to transform them. In your own stories, because you weren't writing histories. No, not at all.、Uh, both plays are, are fanciful recountings of, of the spirit of those men's lives more than they are representations of the actual lives.、Uh, but yeah, I think I was, as a, a, a young person, I was very attracted to extremity. And、uh, extreme people are really just our own appetites distilled in some way. So I think they're useful subjects for drama. Because、uh, we'd all like to flatter ourselves that we have nothing in common with Dasad, but chances are we're、uh, being less than honest. And, and so I think in these radical, radical figures, if you represent them fully, we do see a frightening hint of ourselves.、Hmm. Now, Quills, of course, was very successful at New York Theatre Workshop, engendered multiple productions, and a few years later ended up on the big screen and, and lured you out to, to Hollywood、exactly. for a while.、Um, Was there the temptation to just give yourself over to, to movie work?、Um, were there the opportunities to give yourself over to movie work? I will say, and this is a sobering thing to admit, I've had the great fortune in the last five years or so to have had three shows reach Broadway in some incarnation. And through all that time, I have still been doing film rewrites, adapting novels,、uh, punching up existing scripts to earn a living and pay my Manhattan mortgage. So, uh, uh, film writing in my life is more of an economic necessity than I would qualify it as a passion. But the beautiful thing about Quills is it made me eligible for that kind of work. So,、hmm. so, it has allowed me to earn a living and at the same time pursue my frivolous theater hobby.、Hmm. It's interesting to me that now, after you've had this success with Quills, the next plays over a couple of years are a bunch of one acts, which started <laughs> cropping up in different places. A couple under a commission from the McCarter,、uh-huh. one at Actors Theatre of Louisville, and then you knitted them together ultimately into a complete evening that at one point was called Not Suitable for Children、uh-huh. and then became Unwrap Your Candy. Right.、Um, They, they're very macabre, <laughs> very dark.、Um, you, you were continuing to write from a dark place, and these were almost, you know, not quite Grand Guignol,、uh-huh. but, but, but relatively extreme. Though, when you knitted them together, it was tremendously funny material. God, you've really done your homework, Howard. But it was almost like.、Um, 
Tales from the Crypt, <laughs> that you would you would have this funny sequence, which was part of what was Unwrap Your Candy, and then you'd give people these this shocking playlet, and then go back to some funny stuff. Well, it's I, I love actually to hear you describe them because you're exactly right. Uh, working on Quills, I researched the Grand Guignol quite a bit hmm. and because I felt that stylistically that was part of the fabric of that play. But it birthed in me a real interest in that form. And of course, the Grand Guignol plays were short little comedies that alternated with uh, little playlets of fear and terror. Uh, so they'd call them uh, hot and cold showers. You'd get a cold shower and you'd laugh and then you'd get a hot shower and you'd be mortified and then another cold shower. And and so uh, I always thought of Unwrap Your Can as uh, you know, late twentieth century Grand Guignol evening. So all the plays were contemporary, but they used the same mechanisms of the Grand Guignol to tell their tales. So hmm. it was very much designed to be that sort of theatrical experience. Hmm. So from all of this darkness, somewhere in this in this period where you're still writing from this place of darkness, you began your visits to Germany. Yes. Tell us about the growth of I Am My Own Wife, which really was over a long period of years, even including what you've described as a case of severe writer's block. Mm-hmm. Um, you started – you first met Charlotte von Walsdorf just because she was some interesting character. Somebody told you you should meet her. Exactly. Uh, an old high school friend of mine was working as a journalist in Berlin and said you have to meet this wacky tranny who – lived in East Germany and she's got this funky little museum and it's kind of, you know, hipper than hip to go pay her a visit. Why don't you go? And so I went with my dear friend Christopher Ashley and I was entirely smitten by her. I, I felt almost like I'd I'd found a grandmother I never knew I had and I felt immediately that her play, her life was worthy of a play and asked her if I could write one and she said yes. And uh, Did you want to read your work first? No, she was in an interesting moment in her own life. When the wall fell and and she was discovered, uh, there was a documentary film about her in Berlin by by the celebrated filmmaker Rosa von Pronheim, and uh, her uh, autobiography had been a bestseller. And so she was curiously used to impressionable gay men from all over the globe coming to sit at her knee and hear her stories. Hmm. So for her, I was part of a continuum of ah. adulation. <laughs> Little did she know that you would, that I would, actually you would become the great conduit. Well, the, and, and certainly for, for, audience, for a lot of audiences, the great conduit. The introduction. Of, yeah. The introduction to her. But what's interesting, so you, you made multiple visits over yes. a long period recording her. Um, but then, and and for people who haven't seen the play, you may not want to listen for thirty seconds. But <laughs> um, you ultimately learned that she was not all, or there was more to her more than to she her. had revealed to you, and that in fact she was she managed to survive under some very harsh regimes because she was in fact collaborating exactly. with those regimes. And is that what sort of stopped you in the progress of the play? I think so. I think I'd come to, to love her unabashedly and, and see her as a pivotal figure, uh, not only in my own life, but also historically as a really kind of crucial gay hero. And, and what I learned about her didn't uh, correlate to 
my rosy vision of, of Charlotta. And I also felt like to write the play would be a betrayal of a friendship because I knew that there were certain things I'd learned that she wouldn't necessarily want to see disclosed. Mm-hmm. And I think it frightened me enormously. And I thought, you know, is this uh, – gay playwright from Dallas, Texas, how can I purport to blow the whistle on someone from a radically different culture who survived a radically different time under circumstances that in no way approach my own? And I felt humbled in a way and frightened. And so I sat on the material for years. I also, on a craft level, was confronting all of the routine problems of biographical drama. Human lives don't have narrative and thematic continuity. That's the great gift that art gives them. And I couldn't find a way of condensing Charlotta's life into uh, a meaningful and cogent narrative arc. So I was uh, hindered both by conscience and finite craft, Hmm. and that made it very hard to write. (laughs) But when the Stasi vials were revealed, is that what allowed you to pick up the project again? Yes. I found out about Charlotta's Stasi involvement before the German press did. And I kept quiet about it. It Hmm. felt like a a big secret. And uh, I knew it would have repercussions. So I sort of absented myself. And then uh, two years after I learned about her collaboration, uh, the German press did. And there was a a firestorm. And and people wrote about her and condemned her. And suddenly... uh, 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 Pandora's box had been opened and it was no longer – it would no longer be my disclosure. It was another part of her uh, history and public history hmm. and I felt I could uh, then craft the play because I suddenly had a first and second act. I had my idealization of her in act one and uh, my more uh, profound ruminations about her in act two and it suddenly had a structure and a shape. That – Structure and Shape was developed. You were invited by Bob Lacker out Uh to the Sundance Theater Workshop, and you took Moises Kaufman and um, Jefferson Mays out with you to develop the piece. And I'm very curious, at what point did you decide one performer would play all of the roles and why? Initially, when Bob made the generous invitation for me to come to Sundance, I thought, man, I've been working on this for 10 years. I don't have anything. Uh, I'll just take the transcripts, the the interviews that I recorded with Charlotta myself. So I packed up all 500 pages of my luggage and went out to Sundance with Jefferson and Moises. And Moises said, you've been terribly, terribly blocked. He said, now, I have built a career on creating plays out of found text. You tell me you have 500 pages of found text. Let's use that as a first draft. Let's throw all your early efforts at dramatizing her life out, and let's look at the documents you have. So we gave them to Jefferson and asked them if he would read them aloud. So since they were transcriptions of my actual audio cassettes with Charlotta, uh, my voice appeared on them and so did hers. So Jefferson had known me for a very long time, so he started by doing a sort of cagey, uh, slightly satiric impression of me when he would read my voice aloud from the page. And then he'd listen to numerous tape recordings of Charlotta and he would imitate her voice when he read that. And suddenly there was this thrilling conversation going on and only one actor in front of me. And I thought, well, how wonderful that a a fascinating historical figure who was forced to adopt a series of guises in order to live her life 
uh, how fitting that her story should be told by an actor forced to adopt a series of guises in order to impart it. And that's when I thought, I don't need anything more than Jefferson. He can play every one of these characters. And it also felt like the play would be about discordant points of view about a human being. And points of view don't always constitute full flesh and blood characters. So I was able to ask Jefferson to play uh, a news reporter who had three quick lines or uh, a German official who shouted out one epithet. And I could get those multitudinous points of view without the writerly obligation of embodying them in a full-bodied three-dimensional character. (laughs) There was an interesting choice though which was that the costuming – Mm-hmm. was always that of Charlotta, yet it wasn't her telling the story. Absolutely, absolutely. We all sat in a little cabin at Sundance, and after the first few days of hearing Jefferson read these transcripts, we were all really dispirited and and just like groaning and saying, oh my God, it's going to be a one-man show. Don't you hate one-man shows? Hmm. And all of us just started to go through the litany of cliches about one-person theater, like the big costume box full of funny hats. Right. And, and, and all the little props that show character transformation. And so we made a long list of all of the conventions about one-person shows that annoyed us and said, how can we systematically avoid all of these conventions? Mm-hmm. And I, I had the notion of the dress because I thought uh, in our culture, anyone who's transvestite is regarded as exotic or the other. Uh, and I thought it would be nice if this play normalized transvestism and if every single character in it as Jefferson embodied them, were still in a little black dress. So when you see the play, Nazi officials are in little black dresses and Stasi guards are in little black dresses and uh, American, visiting Americans are in little black dresses. So you stop noticing the dress. So the very thing that set Charlotta apart and made her different, 15 minutes into the play, you have assimilated and forgotten and you're watching the drama instead. And that felt like a a fun way of serving her and her mm-hmm. memory. This may seem like I'm going off topic, but I'll come quickly back. When uh, the chairman of the American Theater Wing re- spoke with you after reading your piece for Play That Changed My Life, um, you were very appreciative of his praise and commented that it was somewhat difficult for you to write because you were exposing more of yourself than you perhaps had ever done. Yet, with I Am My Own Wife, you made the decision to put yourself on stage. You uh-huh. did not, as so many playwrights do, put in a doppelganger under right. a different name. It was Doug Wright meeting with Charlotte von Malsdorf and learning these. It was all the real names. So how did you come to the decision that it had to stay you? And what were the risks of that? The risks, I think, uh, were that I would be accused of absolutely uh, rampant narcissism, uh, putting myself in the play. And uh, some people did. But the dividend, it it wasn't even a dramatic dividend. I think it was a sense of moral obligation. I was calling Charlotte von Malsdorf by her real name. I was purporting to introduce her to a world that previously didn't know her. I was purporting to tell secrets about her life that had never previously been Uh, disclosed in this country and I thought if I was going to uh, expose her so completely, then uh, I had a moral obligation to 
uh, not disguise myself or my own experience with her. So I felt like uh, putting myself in the play so unguardedly was necessary to keep the play entirely honest. And and if I was going to subject her to that kind of scrutiny, I had to subject myself as well. Hmm. Uh, although uh, I would tease Jefferson and he'd be about to go on stage and I'd say uh, – now remember when you go on tonight. She's just the colorful supporting character. I'm the lead. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, occasionally I would sit through the performance, particularly when friends were present in the audience, and I'd go back afterwards to congratulate Jefferson. And I'd often say, oh, Jefferson, again tonight, you brought me to tears. And he'd sort of arch an eyebrow and say, was it during your own speech? <laughs> After the rampant musical success that you had in 1989 with Buzz Berkeley, <laughs> how did you come to Grey Gardens? Because you had had that one musical experience and you were not a musical book writer, or at least that we were aware of. Exactly. Well, again, you know, that was a first effort, and I don't think anyone gets it right the first time mm-hmm. out. Uh, and and Grey Gardens was through the happy faith of my dear friend Scott Frankel, with whom I'd gone to college. And it was really his brainchild, and he had optioned the film always been passionate about it, felt that it had a very genuine musical voice, and asked me if I would write the book. And I said no. And he said, why not? And I said, well, we'll have lunch and we'll talk about it. So I got together with Scott and Michael Corey and we had lunch and I said, the great strength of the film is it's a documentary and its very similitude is its most profound asset and that's the first thing we'd sacrifice, so it's pointless. Secondly, it's entirely non-narrative. It's an interesting psychological portrait of a relationship, but there's no central story, so it defies dramatization. And secondly, it's a, a piece of iconic camp will will be laughed at no matter how seriously we treat these women and, and what we believe to be their integrity. So no. And Scott is very cagey and he said, uh, those are all really compelling points. Let's have lunch again next week and we can review them and you can give us further reasons why we shouldn't do this as a musical. So we had lunch the next week. And we had lunch the next week and then the next week. And after so many lunches, we had a first draft. I'm hmm. still not entirely sure how it happened. When did the decision come? Did you say you, you, the movie was out there, people knew it. When was the decision made that the movie was the second act or at least the the basis for the second act, but that you would you would tell the backstory in the first act? Uh, two things happened. Uh, the first, uh, Scott and Michael were having lunch one day saying, how do we get Doug aboard? Uh, how can we give this narrative shape? And, and uh, Scott sort of wrote down on a napkin, you know, 1940s, 1970s, and sort of tore the napkin in half and passed it to Michael. And Michael said, I think you're right. We could do this. And then I was sitting talking to them and I said, this is an – a film that was regarded as really groundbreaking and subversive in its day. So if we are going to do a musical of Grey Gardens, we have to be subversive too. How can we be subversive? It seems like in a movie that's entirely about hoarding and discord and clutter and desiccation and a sort of lost America and, and that house is so well known to, to moviegoers and fans of the film, uh, what's the most shocking image we could greet them with at the top of the show? A beautiful, well-appointed, affluent, 
home mm-hmm. because that's not what you associate with Grey Gardens. So it, it felt like it was serving us narratively and thematically. It was letting us subvert what was already subversive. So uh, that's how we arrived at, at that conceit. So often when I talk to people who write musicals, book writers, lyricists, um, they talk about how so often the playwright has to write, in some cases, even more than is necessary to give the songwriters the framework to figure out where the songs go. Was 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 that the case? Did you did were you writing monologues that would become songs, or or do you, was it just you wrote your you know you decided where the songs collectively would go, and you'd write up to that point, and they'd take it? I'd say every permutation of that happened, even to the point where Michael Corey would give me lyric, and we'd say, wow, we really can't use this lyric. But I'd say, that's a really trenchant line. Can I use that in dialogue? Huh. So, so it even went the other way. It absolutely went the other way. And, and I also felt, you know, when you're dealing with songwriters as gifted as Scott and Michael, I had a rule for myself, and I said, never censor any productive voice in the room when you're collaborating. And I know one day Michael Corey came to me and said, I really want to do a song where Big Edie is cooking corn in her hot pot. And I'm just going to take a stab at it. And in my head, I'm going, well, that's going to lay there like an egg. That's the worst (laughs) idea I've heard. But if Michael had an impulse, if some little light had gone on that said, try the hot plate number, I I thought, who am I to prematurely squelch that? So I said, go ahead, give it a shot. And he came in with one of the most revelatory and heartbreaking lyrics in the whole show. And it became one of my absolute favorite numbers. So I think we all tried to respect one another's impulses no matter how how haywire they seemed because we trusted one another's fundamental talent and we said if that moment is critical enough to excite Scott to a melody or to Michael to a turn of phrase or to Doug for a dialogue exchange or a plot turn, let's honor that and then see what we come up with uh, collectively and stitch it together in a workable fabric. So. Mm-hmm. We have talked about rage, <laughs> transvestitism, <laughs> uh, Grand Guignol. Um, how on earth did you come to The Little Mermaid, which would seem not to feature all of those same qualities <laughs> for which you had become known? At first glance. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I met with Tom Schumacher about the project, uh, I said, uh, I think that Ursula the Sea Witch and the Marquis de Sade have more in common than maybe even Disney wants to admit. And of course, arguably, as you said in your your lovely introduction, uh, I've been drawn to the stories of outsiders and who uh, – the quintessential outsider is Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. I mean she's she's in a world where she doesn't feel like she belongs and she has aspirations to go somewhere else and and has to undergo seismic personal change to achieve that. So she felt – it felt like another outsider story to me. Hmm. And uh, I'd been deeply moved by the film. I thought uh, Alan Menken's songs were fantastic. And and a lot of people were under the perception that uh, Disney and their uh, interest to, you know, attract highfalutin artistes chased the big Pulitzer Prize winner to get him to do Mermaid. And in truth, uh, I lobbied for the job. Hmm. Uh, and uh, had a great time doing it. And I know that the show was met with a variety of, of responses. And sometimes those responses you read in the paper are so remote from the experience of making it. And whatever its production attributes or liabilities, 
working on that show for two years of my life was simply joyous. Hmm. And uh, I tell all my playwright friends, I say, once in your life, you know, write a show that's full of tap dancing seagulls and it will do something incalculably good for you. And uh, uh, so it was a special experience for me. And I'm certainly sorry that the show didn't run longer and uh, sorry that we didn't get enthusiasm from all quarters. But uh, as a personal experience that I can sort of log in the scrapbook of my life, it was a special one. Hmm. So it seems, as we talked, the trajectory has gone from outsider to insider, from <laughs> rage to acceptance. Um, you did slip by going back to Strindberg <laughs> over the summer. Um, can you tell me anything about what you're looking to do next? Sure. I have a, a couple things. I'm doing another screenplay, and uh, it's for the fine people at DreamWorks. It's uh, the story of George Gershwin and the first production of Porgy and Bess, hmm. uh, which is really about the, the, the great wedding of, of uh, issues of race and popular culture in this country. So many people who, who saw that opera as a watershed moment bringing race and, and pop culture together, and so many people who found it uh, deeply troubling and uh, an appropriation of African-American idioms and, and musical forms. And so this is a, a movie that tries to deal with all of those perspectives and has at its center the rather remarkable figure of, of Gershwin. So that's been great fun to work on. And I'm also embarking on yet another musical. See, I've got this taste for them now. And it's uh, with the wonderful lyricist uh, Amanda Green, who is also composing this time out. And we have a, a, a thrilling musical advisor in the person of T-Bone Burnett, hmm. who's recently represented uh, in cinemas with the film Crazy Heart and produced the music for Walk the Line and won a Grammy for his uh, Katie Lang and Tony Bennett album. And uh, it's based on a documentary from East Texas called Hands on a Hard Body about a truck competition in a, a rural town, uh, Longview, Texas, near Louisiana. And uh, that's, of course, the part of the country where I grew up. And so I'm returning to my Texas roots. Hmm. Well, we look forward to those. And I want to thank you for talking to us today on Downstage Center. And also thank you for being part of The Wings Project, the play that changed my life. Doug Wright, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of the Wings fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.